someone once asked John MacArthur, who's a well-known Bible teacher I think most of us are familiar with, do you believe in election? MacArthur wryly responded, well, that word is in the Bible. Indeed, that word is in the Bible. Here's a sampling of places in Scripture where the concept of choosing appears. Deuteronomy 4, 37. Because he loved your forefathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 15. The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose your offspring after them. Deuteronomy 17, 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 28. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? 2 Samuel 6 and verse 21. The Lord chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel. 1 Kings 8 and verse 16. I chose David to be over my people Israel. Nehemiah 9 and verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Psalm, seven, Psalm 47 and verse 4. He chose our heritage for us. Psalm 65 and verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Psalm 78 verses 68 and 70. He chose the tribe of Judah. He chose David. Isaiah 14 and verse 1. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel. Jeremiah 49:19 and Jeremiah 50:44 which are identical. And I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Ezekiel 20 and verse 5. On the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. Matthew 20 and verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? John 15 and verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. John 15 and verse 19. I chose you out of this world. Acts 13 and verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 27 and 28. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Ephesians 1 and verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. 
And here are some places where the very word election itself is mentioned. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Matthew 24 and verse 22. Matthew 24 and verse 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24 and verse 31. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds. There are parallel passages in the other synoptics as well, but I won't read them for the sake of avoiding redundancy. Luke 18 and verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Romans 8 and verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Romans 9 and verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Romans 11 and verse 7. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Romans 11 and verse 28. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Titus 1 1. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. 1 Peter 1 1. To those who are elect exiles. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Confirm your calling and election. May we agree with John MacArthur who says, indeed, that word is in the Bible. In view of all these mentions of election or choosing, every Bible-believing Christian must believe in election. There's no way you can't. If one professes to believe the Bible to be God's word, then the question cannot be, do I believe in election? Instead, since the word is in the Bible... The question ought to be, what does the word election mean? What does the Bible mean when it says election? To just dismiss election altogether and say, I don't believe in that stuff, is not an option for a Bible-believing Christian because of the many instances of choosing and electing and even a people called the elect in the Bible. So when we come to answer Questions like, what does the word election mean? What does the Bible mean when it says election? We see that there are three types of election in the Bible pertaining to people, as opposed to angels, like it talks about elect angels at one section, or elect objects, chosen objects, chosen events, etc. Three types of election in the Bible pertaining to people. One biblical type of election is national Election, God's choosing of a country. The nation of Israel was chosen from among the nations of the earth to receive fuller revelation from God than the other nations and to have a unique relationship to God. Note that national election doesn't involve salvation from sin for every person within the nation that has been chosen by God. Not every Jew in the Old Testament went to heaven, though it's certainly true to say that Israel was a chosen nation. They were chosen corporately together as a nation to have a privileged relationship to God. 
Another biblical type of election is election unto service or election unto an office. People are chosen by God in the Bible for certain tasks or roles. Again, here we're not talking about salvation from sin. Not everyone who was chosen to fulfill a certain task or fulfill a certain role went to heaven. Examples of this type of election unto a task or a role include David, who, as we read, was certainly chosen by God to be king. His election was unto kingship. And the apostles, who were clearly chosen by Jesus to be apostles. And even the pagan king of Persia, Cyrus, who God calls my anointed in Isaiah 45 and verse 1. These are two types of election which are clearly biblical. This national election and election unto a service or a role. We can find very clear examples of those in the Bible. But there is also a third type of election which is equally biblical. In the Bible, God chooses people to be saved from sin. That is... That, pardon me, that this is a type of election found in the Bible is as clear as the two other types. Israel was chosen for a privileged relationship with God. People were chosen for roles of service. And people are chosen for salvation from sin. There clearly are, in the Bible, elect people. When we consider the biblical data, we see that there is an election of people unto holiness and blamelessness before God, adoption as sons, justification, etc. Consider Matthew 24, 31, which I read earlier, as a clear example of an election unto salvation. In speaking of the return of Christ, the scripture says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds. Clearly, that's an example of an election of people unto salvation from sin. It is the Christian's great hope at that last trumpet call to be gathered from the four winds. To be with Christ forever. That's our hope. That's the consummation of our salvation. Hearing that trumpet call. And being gathered from the four winds to be with Christ. That's a clear example of the word elect being applied to a group of people. Who are saved from their sin. Throughout most of history... It's been abundantly clear to people on both sides of the debate that I'm going to introduce you to explicitly in a moment that there is an election unto salvation from sin. Historically, people haven't disputed that there are people chosen to be saved from sin because of texts like Matthew 24, 31 and numerous others in the Bible. Historically, the debate then has not been, is there election unto salvation or not? Rather, the debate has been historically about the basis of God's choice. Is election conditional upon a distinguishing attribute of the people who God decides to choose? 
does God choose unconditionally without taking into account the various attributes that distinguish people from one another? Historically, that's been the debate. Not whether there is election. There clearly is. Not whether there is election unto salvation from sin. There clearly is. But whether that election unto salvation from sin is conditional or unconditional. Arminianism is the theological name for those who disagree with the historic reformed understanding of election. And their name comes from a historic proponent of a dissenting view. Just as Calvinism, which is what the reformed position is typically called, is called by the name of a historic proponent of that view. Now let's be fair. Arminians don't follow a man any more than Calvin, Calvinists follow a man. Right? This kind of rhetoric gets thrown around in this debate, and it's not really fair. Everybody, I think if we were to assess charitably, is trying to be biblical. Nobody's saying, I believe this because Calvin said it, and I worship Calvin. Nobody's saying, I believe this because Arminius said it, and whatever Arminius says is true. Nobody's really doing that, at least, well, maybe somebody is. (laughs) The vast majority aren't on either side of the debate. So when we say Arminianism or Calvinism, it's just ways to summarize the chief historical proponent of each view. Everyone on both sides is simply trying to be biblical. The labels come from a historic debate between those who supported Calvin's view and those who supported Arminius' view when the debate arose. Now, if I may digress for a moment here, I do hear people, both Calvinists and Arminians, say from time to time something like this. I'm not a Calvinist or an Arminian. I'm just a Bible-believing Christian. And I respect the impulse that I believe is behind that statement. I respect the fact that people don't like the terminology associated with the debate and don't want to use it. Fair enough. You don't have to use the terminology. You don't have to wave the banner of Calvinist or Arminian over your life. No one's asking you to. No one's asking you to go out and buy reformed t-shirts. Right or Arminian t-shirts and parade around the fact that you're in this camp or that camp. Nobody is asking you to do that. Nobody requires that. However, saying that you're neither a Calvinist nor an Arminian is logically a bit like saying I'm neither a man nor a woman, I'm just a person. The reason being, the reason being that Calvinism and Arminianism are binary options when it comes to each of the disputed five points. You either believe that humans have been affected by sin in the totality of our being, or you don't. You either believe that election is unconditional, or you believe that it's conditional. You either believe that Jesus atoned for the sins of all people without exception, or you believe that Jesus atoned for the sins of the elect only. You either believe that you cannot ultimately resist the Holy Spirit's attempts to woo and win you to faith in Christ, or that you can ultimately resist. And you either believe that the Holy Spirit guarantees your perseverance in the faith, or you believe that He doesn't. And so, 
you can see what I mean that you either have to choose one or the other. You can't believe both at the same time because they're mutually contradictory positions and there's no third option. Anyway, that's a digression. But I think it's important as we sometimes use the terminology of Calvinists and Arminians, even here in our own church. You're going to hear it from time to time outside the church. And that terminology is bound to come up even throughout the course of the upcoming Caribbean Baptist Heritage Conference. And so I think it's helpful at least to define terms and to know what we're talking about uh, as we engage in these sorts of discussions. So anyhow, with that in mind, let's get back to the main point that I was making, which is that historically the debate has not been, is there election unto salvation or not? Rather, the debate has been about the basis of God's choice. Is election conditional upon a distinguishing attribute of the people who God decides to choose? Or does God choose unconditionally without taking into account the various attributes that distinguish people from one another? And here's the classic Arminian position on election, taken from those who supported the teachings of James Arminius himself in the first five articles of remonstrance. God, by an eternal and unchangeable purpose in Jesus Christ, his son, before the foundation of the world, has determined that out of the fallen sinful race of men to save in Christ for Christ's sake and through Christ, those who through the grace of the Holy Spirit shall believe on this His Son Jesus and shall persevere in, his, in this faith and obedience of faith through this grace even to the end. Clearly these Arminians believed in an election of individuals unto salvation. However, for them the conditions of election are faith and perseverance. Those whom God knows will believe and persevere are chosen by Him for salvation. Jack Cottrell, a more modern proponent of Arminianism, argues that election is the idea that God predestines to salvation those individuals who meet the gracious conditions which He has set forth. So if you meet the gracious conditions, then God predestines you unto salvation. And that's election, according to Jack Cottrell. So again, this really emphasizes the point, quoting from the Articles of Remonstrance, quoting from Jack Cottrell. This really reinforces the point that there shouldn't be a debate about whether individuals are chosen for salvation or not. Historically, both Arminians and Calvinists agree about that. And you'd have to close your eyes to the scriptures to deny the bare fact that people are chosen by God for salvation. The reasonable and important discussion that needs to take place among brothers with genuine differences is whether that election is conditional, as the historical Arminians argued, or unconditional, as the historical Calvinists argued. And where else would we turn to resolve this debate but the Scriptures? And where else in the scriptures would be turned but to a passage that is about election and deals with common objections to the doctrine of election set forth there, namely Romans 9. Paul lays out in Romans 9 
the Spirit-inspired and authoritative last word on election. Paul begins by explaining that there is an election within an election. People were confused because Israel seemed to be missing God's salvation as the vast majority of Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Paul explains in Romans 9 verses 6 and 7 that not all who are ethnically Jewish are chosen by God for salvation from sin. They're chosen, alright, they're part of the chosen people. Remember we talked about the national election? But just because you're part of a national election, just because you belong to a nation that was chosen by God, it doesn't mean that you were chosen by God for salvation from sin. This is Paul's point. He elaborates in verse 8, That there are individuals within Israel who are elected unto salvation. So in other words, there is a national election of all Israelites to stand in a privileged relationship to God. Receiving more revelation than other nations. Having a better opportunity to be saved, humanly speaking, than those in other nations. But there are individuals within Israel who have been individually chosen, not merely to have the opportunity to be saved, but they have been chosen actually to be saved. God has chosen individuals from among the Jews who are to receive salvation. And Paul will go on to tell us later in the chapter, God has also chosen individuals from among the Gentiles or non-Jews. To receive, to be saved from their sin, pardon me. These people are the true heirs to the fullness of the promises. These elect people are the true Israel. That's the thrust of verses 6 to 8, and then verses 24 to 26, later in the chapter. Then in verse 9, Paul turns to consider an example. Isaac and Ishmael, which were children of... Abraham, come on guys, we've been going through Genesis on Sunday evenings. (laughs) He shows that Isaac, he shows that Isaac was elect, while implying that Ishmael wasn't. But lest anybody object that the sons had the same father, yes, but two different mothers, Paul uses another example. Jacob and Esau had the same father and the same mother. So, we're not talking about Sarah and Hagar being the difference, the distinguishing mark, right? Potentially, that's a different variable, and as we all know, when trying to do a scientific experiment, you've got to make the variables the same. And so, he says, well, lest you argue that one was born of the free woman and one was born of the slave, let's look at a pair of children who have the same mother and father in fact let's look at twins who were born at the same time under the same circumstances they weren't even born yet and had done nothing either good or bad and Paul explicitly states that Jacob was elect and Esau wasn't in order that God's purpose of election may continue 
it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul's example couldn't be clearer. There was nothing in the individuals which distinguishes them from one another. It's not because one was better than the other, more obedient, wiser, more receptive, more faithful, etc. Paul is quite clear. It has nothing to do with anything Jacob and Esau did, either good or bad. He states that explicitly. And yet God chose one of them for salvation and not the other. God's choice to save an individual is not predicated upon his observation of their works, either good or bad. God's choice to save an individual is not predicated on his foreknowledge of their works, either good or bad. Otherwise, Paul's argument here actually wouldn't hold, you know. Paul explicitly states here that the election of Jacob and not Esau occurred apart from works. If it was based on foreknown works, then Paul couldn't have said, not because of works. Paul explicitly states here that election, the election of Jacob and not Esau occurred apart from works either good or bad, by implication whether observed in time or foreknown. And as Paul is using that example as an example of how all election unto salvation from sin works, we can't say that the election of Jacob is an exceptional case. Paul is reasoning here in this section. This is how election works. So you can't say, well, in that one instance, that's how election worked. Paul is saying, no, this is how it works. I'm explaining a principle to you of why not all Jews, not all ethnic Jews, are being saved from their sin. Because God has chosen some and not others. There is an election within an election. Among those who belong to the Israelite nation, which has been chosen corporately, God has chosen a subset of those people to be saved from their sin. Let me demonstrate the point that this is how it works by showing you Jacob and Esau. You see, that's what Paul's doing in Romans 9. And so because he is using the example of Jacob and Esau to prove a general principle, we can't say that that was an exceptional case. As Paul goes on, he makes it clear that God's choice to save an individual is not predicated on his observation or foreknowledge of their faith either. How does election work? Upon, upon what basis? Not because of works, 11 says. 9.16 says, So then, it, that is election... Depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Neither the works that someone does, 
nor the things that someone does with their will serve as the basis of God's election of an individual unto salvation. What conditions did they meet? What works did they do? Verse 11 says, it's not because of works. Well, what is it that they did differently with their will that caused God to choose? Romans 9.16 says, it's not because of will. Paul's clear teaching in Romans 9 is this. That God has chosen unconditionally for salvation some individuals and not others. It's not because of works. Verse 11. It's not because of something you did with your will. It's not of him who wills or runs. It's not because of human will or exertion. But because of God. God has chosen some individuals and not others for salvation. For many people, objections arise immediately when we reform folks or Calvinists or, or Bible-believing Christians that are neither Calvinists nor Arminians. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, when we say this, there are objections that arise immediately for some folks, for some people. The most common objection that people raise at this juncture is that it's unjust. That it's not fair. It's not right for God to choose one person for salvation and not another. We'll deal with the substance of that objection in a moment. But the first thing that I would like to point out in responding to this objection is that This is exactly the objection that is raised by Paul's interlocutor in Romans chapter 9 and verse 14 then. What then, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see, Paul anticipates somebody arguing and disputing with him. And he anticipates that at this juncture they're going to say, well, that's unjust. If this is your objection, you ought to realize that you are actually vocalizing the position of the opponents and the critics of the Apostle Paul, rather than the position of Paul himself. And that's not a good thing. We want to be on the side of the Apostles. Speaking and writing against the critics of their doctrine. Rather than being on the other side of the apostles, speaking and writing against apostolic doctrine. Even if you don't like the apostles' doctrine, it is important as a Bible-believing Christian, if you are to be a Bible-believing Christian, it is important even if you don't like the Apostles' Doctrine, to allow yourself to be corrected by the Scriptures, even when it's uncomfortable. Let me tell you a personal story about my journey to embrace the Reformed understanding of election. A number of years ago, I held the Arminian position on the doctrine of election. 
Yeah, a good friend of mine held the Calvinistic position and was always trying to convince me. Every time I would see him, like the first thing out of his mouth. And I had to write an exegetical paper for a seminary class that I was enrolled in. That's a paper explaining what a particular passage teaches. That was just the simple assignment. What does this passage of scripture teach? I could choose any passage in scripture that I wanted. And I chose Romans 9. And I chose Romans 9 to settle this issue once and for all with my friend. I thought when he reads my exegetical paper, this debate will be over. As I worked through Romans 9, I found myself coming to an uncomfortable fork in the road. To choose to believe what the Bible actually says, in spite of my resistance to it, or to avoid or ignore what the Bible actually says and stay in my comfort zone. Listen, I'll be honest. I came to accept the Reformed understanding of the doctrine of election before I liked it. That's possible to do. I came to accept the Calvinistic understanding of the doctrine of election before I liked it. I could see that the Bible taught the Calvinistic position, or whatever you want to call it. I could see that the Bible taught unconditional, unconditional election. Not that God chose you because of what He foresaw you would do. It's not because of works, verse 11. I could see that the Bible taught that God didn't choose you because of something you would do with your will. Verse 16 says it's not of Him who wills or runs. It's not because of human will or exertion. I could see that the Bible taught that God chose individuals for salvation from sin not because of conditions that they had met that other people didn't meet not because of things they did or things they did with their will that other people didn't do or didn't do with their will but God chose unconditionally I saw that the Bible taught that and I saw that my objections to that teaching were the ones being raised by Paul's opponents In Romans 9. And that my understanding was not the same as the Apostle Paul's. Paul is teaching here explicitly that election depends not on human will or exertion. But on God who has mercy. The objection that unconditional election is unjust. Is an objection that his opponents raise. It's taking a contrary position to Paul. And as I said, that's not a good thing. But beyond simply saying that Paul teaches this and so we should believe it, and it's better to be on Paul's side than on his opponent's side, beyond simply saying that, though that's worth noting, let's spend a few minutes trying to respond to the substance of the objection that it's not fair or it's not just. And here's the heart of a proper response to that objection. The payment of a debt is not mercy. The payment of a debt is what is owed. Mercy is, by definition, something that is not owed. If it's owed, it's not mercy. 
Louis Burkhoff is helpful to us here. He says, the fact that God favors some and passes by others does not warrant the charge that he is guilty of injustice. We can speak of injustice only when one party has a claim on the other. If God owed the forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all men, it would be an injustice if he saved only a limited number of them. But the sinner has absolutely no right or claim on the blessings which flow from divine election. As a matter of fact, he has forfeited these blessings. Not only have we no right to call God to account for electing some and passing others by, but we must admit that he would have been perfectly just if he had not saved any. So, if you were following his train of thought, what Burkhoff is saying, and rightly so, is that unless we're prepared to say that God owes everybody salvation, then we cannot claim injustice if God chooses not to save everyone. This is the heart of Paul's rebuttal. No, it's not unjust for God to elect Jacob over Esau. If God owed Esau salvation, then God never could have talked about salvation as mercy. But since God does talk about salvation as mercy, then we know that He doesn't owe anyone salvation. Either salvation is a debt that God owes people, or it's not. It cannot be both. If your neighbor wants to buy a brand new car, let's say he's just tired of taking the bus. He's sick of catching a van. And he wants a brand new car. And he comes to you, and he asks you for $50,000 So that he can buy a brand new car. But you don't owe him any money. Then you are not unjust to say no. But if you owe your neighbor $50,000. And he decides he wants to buy a brand new car. And so he decides to call in his debt. That you owe him. And then you refuse to give it to him then you are unjust. This is how election works. And this is Paul's point. If you're talking about what is owed, then you may speak about injustice. But if you're speaking about mercy, then you are not speaking about what is owed. Therefore, you may not claim injustice. Therefore, since salvation is a merciful act of God which I'm sure all of us agree with. Everyone on both sides of the spectrum can agree with. Both sides of the discussion. Which is states, even here, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If salvation is a merciful act of God, then we are forced to concede that it's not unjust 
for God to choose some individuals and not others. Therefore, we ought not to be talking about the injustice of God in choosing to save some but not all. That shouldn't be our reaction when we come to the doctrine of election. Instead, we should be talking about the mercy that God would save any. And that's the first application of this doctrine. This doctrine of election ought to put you in awe of God's mercy. Brothers and sisters, the well of grace is deeper than you thought. You thought that God provided the possibility of your salvation and that you took advantage of it. You thought that Jack, as Jack Cottrell said earlier in the sermon, you thought that you met the gracious conditions which he had set forth. You thought that there was something in you that prompted God to save you. That prompted God to choose you. And you see now that the whole thing was unconditional mercy. He loved you. Remember, we're talking about individuals for salvation from sin. God's choosing of individuals for salvation and sin from sin. Which means, Christian, each and every one of you, by name, God loved you. Not you, plural, you, singular, with an everlasting love. Apart from anything that He foresaw in you, apart from any works that He saw you did, or foresaw that you would do, apart from anything you did with your will, or anything He foresaw you would do with your will, God, simply being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons. He chose you, Christian. Unconditional election of you. Grace that is more gracious than you thought. Let's consider the implications, one of the implications, pardon me, of believing that election is conditional. If God merely provides this possibility of salvation to all people everywhere without exception, and then chooses to save those who who meet the gracious conditions that He set forth, as Jack Cottrell said, then you must concede that you believe, Arminian Christian, that you have met those conditions. If that's your system, then your implicit claim is, I have met the conditions. Were you wiser than all your family members, friends, and neighbors? Were you less stubborn than they? 
Were you more receptive to the things of God? Were you smarter? However you want to say it, the uncomfortable truth is that you believe that you were chosen to be saved because of something different in you. Some condition meeting in you. But in view of today's teaching, you must come to realize that you were just as lost as the others. But God loved you with an electing love. Though you were no different. In 1 Corinthians, Paul actually says, who sees anything different in you? Who sees anything different in you? You saw Christ in His glory and believed in Him, yes. But you saw because God saw to it that in time, your eyes would be opened. You were blind, but now you see. And this was a function of God's electing love of you, for you. You used your will to choose Christ. Yes, every Christian has decided to follow Jesus. Every Christian has made a commitment to follow Jesus. Every Christian has chosen to follow Jesus. Every Christian has exercised their will to trust Jesus. Yes. But you willed to choose Christ because God willed to choose you. In other words, when you made your choice to come to Christ, whenever that was, whatever that looked like for you, you may not have known it at the time. But as Deuteronomy 33 says, underneath, were the everlasting arms. Another application related to this is that you ought to have appropriately low thoughts of yourself. This doctrine ought to humble you. Now, humility is not simply saying bad things about yourself all the time. Or assuming you're wrong all the time. Humility is not to be confused with uncertainty. Or cowardice. Or self-deprecation. But humility is having a realistic view of yourself. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Which means that you ought to have an appropriately appropriately low thoughts of yourself since you, neither you nor I are realistically a good catch so to speak from God's perspective like as if God is so blessed to have you or God is just so blessed to have me we ought to have appropriately low thoughts of ourselves the doctrine of election teaches us As I mentioned a moment ago, that we were not so much smarter, wiser, more receptive, humble, holy, that God just simply could not resist us. Look at that holy guy down there. Look at that receptive woman down there. Look at that wise man who loves the things of God. Look at that man who is ready to receive. 
It's not as if that happened. Rather, the doctrine of election teaches us that it was not because of who we are, but it was rather in spite of who we are that God chose us for salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. All our righteousness was as filthy rags. Not all our disobedience, not all the, all the dirt was as filthy rags. All the bad stuff we do was as filthy rags. Even the best we could bring forward. Our righteousness was as filthy rags. We were lost. We were blind. These are all things that the Bible says about our state prior to being born again. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists a number of sins and references the sinners who do such things. And then he says to the Corinthian Christians, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. The doctrine of election ought to continually remind us that such were we. God did not choose us because of what we were, but in spite of what we were. In Psalm 103, verse 14, we read that God remembers that we are dust. The doctrine of election helps us to remember the same thing. That we are dust. We are not so very impressive. Election ought to humble us to have appropriately low thoughts of ourselves. And lastly... The doctrine of election is a great comfort to believers. What does it do to your heart? What did it do to your heart a moment ago when I told you that you have been loved with an everlasting love? And not just generally, like someone might say, I love that group of people or I love all people that are like this or I love all people with that interest or that hobby or I love these sorts of people. What does it do? What did it do to your heart to hear that you specifically, by name, Lucas, Kamara, Yvette, Tennyson, Phineas, What does it do to your heart to hear that you have been loved with an everlasting love? And that this love wasn't offered to you because of some condition that you met. It wasn't given to you because of something you did, your works. It's not because of works. Not because of something that He foresaw you would do. Again, it's not because of works. This love didn't come to you because of something you did with your will or that God foresaw you would do with your will, but that it was unconditional. What does it do to your heart to know that as God loves you today, God has loved you always. He loved you in eternity past. And shall love you into eternity future. Forever. What does it do to your heart to know that you have the love of one not fickle or disloyal, but you have the love of one who knows you 
sees you inside and out. He knows all your sins. But He loves you anyway. In spite of it all. What does it do to know that you have the love of one who will never quit on you? One who will never divorce. One who will never drift apart. Who is committed to you, not until death do us part, but without ever parting. Even death will not part you. What does it do to your heart to know that you have the love of the God who is Himself? Love. The God who is love loves you. Not because you have met conditions which might cause you some consternation if you start to feel like you're failing to meet some conditions. But the love of a God who has loved you in spite of your failing to meet conditions. A God who has chosen to love you unconditionally. Comfort, brothers and sisters. Comfort. Those are a few applications of the doctrine of unconditional election as drawn from Scripture. It helps us see just how great grace really is. Just how deep, just how wide is that sea into which God has cast our sins, our iniquities. It humbles us. Helps us have appropriately low thoughts of ourselves. And if we are in Christ Jesus, it brings great comfort to our hearts. The way to know whether you're elect is whether you're in Christ Jesus. Not saying that no one who has yet to believe is not elect, but they could have no way of knowing it unless they will come. If you're in Christ Jesus and you realize, I came... Because God chose me unconditionally. I saw because God saw to it that I would see. It's a great comfort to your heart to understand these things, to feel these things. These are a few applications of the doctrine of election as drawn from Scripture. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider some applications of this doctrine to the task of evangelism. 